Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, we have a recording of the launch of Kate Outey's O'Leary of the Underworld, the untold story of the Forest River Massacre. This book is a powerful investigation that reveals the deep injustices inflicted upon Aboriginal people in the Kimberley in the 1920s. I would like to flag with listeners that this episode contains discussion topics and readings from Outie's work that some listeners may find distressing. The book was launched by Professor Lynette Russell. Here's her introduction. What can I say about Kate Orty? I've known Kate Orty for 25 years, maybe more. <laughs> I met her when she, along with Richard Franklin Gunditjmara, established the Mirambiak Native Title Services in Victoria. Kate was and is a force of nature. She is cyclonic, often overwhelming. Anyone who's ever had the privilege to meet her is always first and foremost struck by fierce intellect, a razor-sharp insight and her capacity to see the big picture and yet all the detail. Her impact is included as a legal scholar, a historical researcher, an environmental activist and a commissioner. She was instrumental in establishing the Koori Courts where she worked for several years and at the coalface of native title work in Victoria. At the core of her very venture is a searing passion for social justice. And in O'Leary of the Underworld, she harnesses all of that passion and all of that commitment and marries it with a forensic reading of historical archives. The result is searing, often excruciating. It's an expose on one of Australia's darkest and most shameful chapters. There's a lot of talk at the moment about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, how we are all hearing calls for voice, truth, treaty. I know Kate has been very active in agitating for the Yes campaign, organising in her region to support the voice to Parliament and the referendum that's coming. And of course, Kate's commitment is based on her first-hand knowledge of the myriad of injustices that have been inflicted on First Nations people. First, as a senior solicitor at the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths and Custodies, which I am sure many of you are well aware of, the 339 recommendations, many of which remain to have been addressed. Truth-telling is so important, and what Kate has done in this book is told a very hard truth. We've all heard the slogans, white Australia has a black history, black armband, white unfolds, but truth-telling remains contentious. It is often challenged. People don't want to hear these stories. And that's why it is so essential that that forensic mind, that legal scholar and historical research, Kate has taken and re-examined some of our collective pasts. And I had the privilege of writing something with her a couple of years ago about Mulboihina and Tanaminawe and the ways in which they had been appallingly treated. But truth-telling is what O'Leary of the Underworld is all about. At its heart, it is a book on the tragedy of the Forest River Massacre, the countless deaths, the cover-ups, the failure of the justice system and the horrific perpetrators and unrepentant murderers. Focusing on particular the character of Patrick Bernard O'Leary, Kate offers us, and this is a quote from the book, a deconstruction of O'Leary, the hero of the herd, revealing a sophisticated and sly liar that he was. He was vicious, brazen and a bullshitter. 
During the 1926 Forest River Patrol, he was menacingly in charge of the main event. During the 1927 Royal Commission, he was arrogantly incognito and contemptuous of the power of the state. And prior to 1926, he was before the courts. In France during World War I, he was before the court a marshal. And after the 1926 mass killings in the Kimberley, he shifted camp to the Coniston. And anybody who knows anything about the history of the Northern Territory must feel a chill run down your spine when you hear the word Coniston. He shifted to Coniston in the Northern Territory, the site of the massacre in 1928. He was mates with Constable Murray, the perpetrator of those killings. O'Leary's real history gives us a dishonest brute. Kate, I can't thank you enough for this book that you have written. It is hard going. It takes a lot of effort into to reading this book, but also I can't imagine the effort that it must have taken to read it. The kind of cumulative trauma that it must take you into as an author. O'Leary of the Underworld, the very name of those collective holdings of the land called the Underworld. I mean, it's, it, it's like some sort of hellish nightmare. We'll never know the true numbers of those that were slaughtered, but Kate has miraculously rescued from some of their archival silence and replaced them back into the story of the wild Kimberley. Their resting places may be unknown, their cries unanswered. This is not a book for the faint-hearted. It is trauma-laden, but it is vitally important that we read it and digest it and understand it and use it to frame the way we think about our pasts. Truth-telling is essential. Kate opens the book with this is a torturous tale, but it has intense contemporary relevance to the work we are doing on truth-telling, charting the route to Indigenous constitutional recognition. And she finishes with, telling the truth shouldn't take so long. It probably will always be this complex as long as perpetrators work to conceal it. And then in the pages in between, she weaves a narrative that is as powerful and as distressing as it is revealing and profound. Everybody here owes Kate an enormous debt because she did what most of us couldn't bear to do and to read the things, the horror that took place not even 100 years ago. Kate, thank you. I just want to say that Charlie and I have come down from Tungarong country today. We've travelled the route that people like Jagaroga travelled as he was brought down here in a chain which was so tight around his neck that when he arrived in the 1840s he struggled to survive and didn't. So acknowledging Tungarong people. I just want to acknowledge too Daniel. Daniel, thank you for coming tonight. Daniel Briggs. I want to acknowledge the people who've been part of what we did with the Corey Court. And this is important because I don't want people to think it's all about yesterday. It's about tomorrow. This book is about why it's important to go to the booth and vote yes. This book is about why Aboriginal people need a voice. It's about why we, as white people in this country, need to recognise that without that voice, Aboriginal people are consigned to O'Leary's past and O'Leary's future. So I just want to say all of that before I then talk a bit about O'Leary. COVID brings you O'Leary because, of course, we were sitting at home thinking, what on earth is there to do? 
O'Leary is a book about a bloke who was part of a massacre of Aboriginal people in 1926, who had been part of a massacre of Aboriginal people in 1922. O'Leary's a story about a bloke who was part of the underground, which is part of the East Kimberley, where in fact Aboriginal people expected to be burnt and not buried. Think about it, burnt and not buried. Some of us would rather be burnt and not buried, but it's not necessarily what Aboriginal people expected or wanted. O'Leary is a person who was part of a whole way of knowing the frontier in the East Kimberley in the 1920s, which meant that Aboriginal people were brutalised in a way that you and I can't even begin to imagine. And what I want to do is just read a little bit from O'Leary from The Underworld because I have dedicated this book to Warrawalla Marga, an old Aboriginal woman who was blind and who was led to her death in chains. Now, all of us stumble to our deaths. We all stumble to our deaths. But most of us can see where we're going and most of us do not have a bullet in our head at the end of the journey. So can I just read this? Some of what the Royal Commission heard in 1927 works to situate the pain of women, women who were exposed to this sort of stuff. Between the waterhole of Godagoda Mary, where we know four Aboriginal men were carried and burnt in what was then called an improvised oven, we know that between the waterhole of Godagoda Mary and the treed plain at Moeri, three women walked. Two men rode. O'Leary was at the head. Constable St Jack brought up the rear. Now, I've imagined that, but you imagine it. From time to time, they shifted sideways and they spoke to each other. Old and blind, Warrawalla Maka, with Goulet and Yoan guiding her, so two Aboriginal women guiding this old, blind Aboriginal woman. Hard as it was in neck chains, these are women in chains. They were herded by Constable St Jack. In his sweat-stained uniform, he might have shoved his horse's shoulder into her back, bunching them up and driving them. The horsemen were likely impatient. Hurry up, get to where we want to get you. O'Leary kept the chain tight and forced the pace. Now in this book, I've introduced a secret voice and the secret voice now follows with this. Secret voice, what explains this? Trying to think like O'Leary is troubling. Who can do it? An old blind woman, what was that about? And then I go on to a commentary. Warrawalla Marga slowed them down, but chained as the women were, O'Leary knew she was an impediment to the others trying to run. That made her useful. The women also knew this, so they helped her. What else was there for them to do? None of the women was present when Hay, whose death resulted in all of this purgatory, Hay charged a man called Lumbia, an Aboriginal man who killed Hay and was fatally speared. But they didn't expect that they would be saved. 
The story was now across the country. Think about it. The story was everywhere. The story of what had happened to Hay, killed by Lumbia, was everywhere. Lumbia had killed Hay. Hay had charged down on him. Hay, the light horseman, on his horse, with his stock whip, with his pistol, shot Lumbia. Lumbia fought back and Lumbia won. Lumbia speared Hay and Hay died. Aboriginal people knew the drill. They knew this story. This story had travelled across the country. It didn't matter whether it was this or another, previous or past. For them, O'Leary was cut like Jack Barry of Birundudu, a man described even by his own and pardon the language as, quote, a cunt of a thing, end quote, who had a stud, an Aboriginal woman or women who was held in camp and used for sex and general labour. I'm sorry about the language, but that's what was out there on the frontier. When one woman, quote, cleared out and ended up at Turner Station, Barry was the person who went across and flogged her back with the whip. He flogged her back on horseback. And when she died, so what? So what? Aboriginal women struggled and died at the hands of these blokes. So let's go back to O'Leary and St Jack, the constable, taking Marawala, Marga. Earlier, as the sun threw early morning shadows, Goulet and Yawan had watched as their men, chained together and seated back to back, were shot in the forehead. One after another, they slumped where they sat. Marawala Marga, unable to see, heard the cracks and she heard the yelling. Later she heard tree branches being chucked onto a bonfire and she smelt bodies burning. Shudders of shock rippled along the chain which connected her to Goulet and to Yawan. Now remember, she's blind. So she's knowing what's happening because she's blind and they are not. She felt and heard their tight-throated wails. Whoa, whoa, who knows what that means? As they plodded along, these three women, pushed and pulled by O'Leary and Constable St Jack, the women all knew their fate would also be a bullet in their head just over the next sandbank, or the next, or the one after that, past the next stand of inadequate fuel. It might have been eerily quiet or noisy, with startled birds. The stink of smoke-infused sweat would have been bitter in the warm June air. Behind this shambling string of women, a narrow chimney of smoke coiled skyward fitfully. Eagles above them, watchful opportunists, might have circled on the thermals. If the women were watched, it was by countrymen. If they talked, it was with fingers. In the far distance were the hills. These women knew the story of this country. They knew the river system, the distant ranges and the ravines. Secret voice. Think like O'Leary. Whatever and wherever there is good wood, that's the stopping place. As this column, the armed and powerful on horseback, and the piteous on foot wound its way northwest. Depressions of foot and hoof were left in the sand. 
horses and humans all bent down the lightest of native grasses. As they breasted the ridge at a place called Moeri, the light was probably bright. Soon chained around the base of a big tree, the women waited, weary and knowing. If they spoke, it was not in their language. If they wept, it was not for their own fate. Later, scattered and dry, fallen timbers were collected and slung around the bodies as they sagged forward, bleeding from head wounds. With the fire burning overnight, the bush was well lit, despite the feeble shadows cast by a warning crescent moon. Finally, in the morning, O'Leary and St Jack saddled up and left camp while the stump was still smoking. That's my rendition of what happened to those three women. I just want to go very quickly because it's not helpful to go longly to this. This story is about people who were taken to places, shot and burnt. There is a residual group of people who say it never happened. There was a royal commission that said it did. And I just want to really capture what it was that happened. Lumbia killed Hay. Hay was the unlucky fucking white who finally got it in the neck when an Aboriginal person said, I've had enough. That's what happened. Hay was then carried to a tree where he was stripped of his clothes if he already didn't have them on and he's left there and he's dead. What comes out of Wyndham is a posse, a posse that says we are going to fix this problem of an Aboriginal person who stood up to us. And what happens is two separate groups of cultivated, choreographed killings. One to the west and one to the north. To the west, there's a police inspector who tells us that four men were taken to a place called Gota Gota Mary. Remember it. Remember Gota Gota Mary. It's a great name. Four men were taken to Gota Gota Mary. And when they were there, they were shot. And when they were shot, they were then shoveled into a creek bed incineration which was effectively an improvised oven because a stone was turned on top of them. Four men. From those four men we see three women taken and they are taken to a place called Moeri and those are the women I've just talked about. Now we don't know because we will never know whether they watched as those men were butchered and burnt but the high probability is that they were. The three women are taken off by St Jack and by O'Leary and they are chained around a tree and they are shot and they are incinerated. And I'm not using the word cremated because cremated is too kind. Cremated is what we do with our aged relative or our person who died of cancer. We take them and they get cremated. These people were incinerated. So three women were chained around that tree. And what then happens is nine other people are brought in and those nine other people are taken to a ravine west of Mowery and those nine people are butchered and they are incinerated there as well. Now, I didn't make that up. The police inspector 
who toured this particular site with an Aboriginal tracker who was part of the police patrol took the police inspector to those places. That Aboriginal tracker, of course, went missing and was chased up by one of the members of the police patrol and who'd be surprised he's not found. But what essentially happens is the police inspector says, four men, three women, nine others. That's what happened to the west, to the west. There's then another incident where, in fact, two of the police, and probably more, I think we should speculate about who was part of this particular patrol, but probably more, head north from the Forest River Mission. And they're still looking for Lumbia. That, that, that extraordinary Aboriginal man who killed Hay, who killed Hay, the light horseman who'd come out of the Boer War as a member of the Brabanetti, he'd killed Hay, he'd got the better of Hay. They're still looking for Lumbia. And what happens with those particular people is that four are brought into the camp at Dala. And the only person who goes to the camp at Dala is, in fact, the Royal Commissioner. He goes there and looks at that camp and he says, he says, not me, not some, you know, mad, rabid leftist. He says there is a clear indication at that place that there is a fire which was six foot by three foot and that's where those four people were taken. It's two men and two women. Ultimately, two police are charged with the murder of one of those people. And, of course, who's surprised? They are acquitted when it goes down to the committal at Perth. But the really interesting thing about those four people is this. The police diaries at the Royal Commission keep saying no natives were seen, no natives were seen, no natives were seen. In fact... In fact, what happened was two Aboriginal people came out of the mission because they were directed to do it, Herbert and Aldoa, and they went north with those police. And when the police stopped at a camp, Herbert and Aldoa brought four people into that camp. They brought them in. They didn't pretend that it was happening. They didn't make it up. They didn't say... This is a fiction, I'm an Aboriginal person, therefore I'm telling a lie. They brought four people into that camp at Dala. And what's interesting is the Royal Commissioner says that camp shows that there was a massive fire and nobody left it. And really telling, really telling, Herbert's a bloke who's very clearly accustomed to us. So he's a person who's, you know, buttoning his shirt and all the rest of it. But Aldoa's a bloke who's part of the country. He's part Alison. He's part of the country. He's part of the people who know this stuff. And Aldoa says, we brought in three people. But there was a fourth. It was Gumbul. And we couldn't bring him in because he couldn't walk. He was too crook. Aldoa goes out and that night... He brings in Gumbel. He brings Gumbel into the police camp where Gumbel with Boondong and the two women, Nuringi and others, are destroyed. They're destroyed. And the really sad thing about this is that Aldoa is related by cousin relation to one of the people he brings into that police camp who's then destroyed. Now... I'm going to stop now. You're going to hear a lot of stuff about how this never happened. 
it's all a lie, Gribble's a liar, it's a fabrication, etc., etc., etc. Just, I want you to think about this. I want you to, when you read this book, think about this. I want you to think about the steps of those women going to that place where they were going to die. And I want you to think, I want you to think about Gumbel being carried in, being carried in by Aldoa. There is no question that 20 people at least were butchered by this particular crew, none whatsoever. And if you read this book, this is what you're going to find. It's ugly. It's not nice. I'm sorry. It's not kind. I'm not going to say that this is a great book to read. Don't buy it if you don't want to spend some time thinking about how the fuck did we do that? Because when you read it, you're going to say, that's what happened. But what I do want people to do from this book is I want people to take away from this book this. That's history. We need to know it. We need to be better at it. We need to tell it. And now, now, we need to make it something good. We need to make it a yes vote and we need to make it treaty and we need to make it truth-telling. And if we don't, all of those people died for nothing. They died for nothing in circumstances where if you or I was pushed by a copper on a horse to the place where we know we're going to get a bullet in our head, it's meaningless. That's all. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Look, I'm sure that there's lots of things we're supposed to do in a, in a book launch. We're, we're, there's probably heaps of things we're supposed to do, Lynette, but we're not going to do them now. Who's got a question? Oh, you've got a question. How did you deal with the anger and outrage that you would have felt and discovered while you were researching this? I think, I think what, happens, what happens when you try to tell these stories is you just realise how how insignificant you are, and you also realise how extraordinarily strong the people are that you're trying to tell the story about. When I was asked to provide some comments for the people who publish these things, they said, can you give us something? And they gave me sort of 15 dot points, and the last one was about that old blind woman. And when I read it, I just picked her up. I just picked her up and I made her number one. And I said... Look, we all stumble to our deaths. We stumble to our deaths. But most of us aren't blind when we do it and we aren't pushed by some bastard who's going to put a bullet in our head. And, and I, th I think the thing that really struck me about it was I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know whether the eagles were whirling. I don't know whether they were watching. I don't know whether people were going, what does this mean for me? But I think we all need to think about that. I keep finding other examples. You know, this is just the 1926 stuff. And, and, and I went and I had a look at some stuff quite by accident. So I'd be urging everybody here to go and get the book off the bookshelf. I went and got Mary Gilmore's book, which is More Reminiscences. And it's got a particular short story in it, which is a reminiscence, which is called The Whip. The Whip. And it was written or published in 1935. 
And Mary Gilmore tells of her uncle rebraiding a whip now. It's an old mm. sort of bushy, I know, that you've got the whip handle and you're rebraiding the whip onto it. And he had found the whip handle. And he gave the story to other men sitting around talking about this. And she overheard it as a child and then wrote it down many years later. And what had happened was her uncle was rebraiding the whip and said, oh, yes, well, I came upon that. I came upon that in the scrub. And I was out looking for cattle. And I thought I might find cattle, dead cattle, whatever. And he said... I started to smell the smell of something dead. He's on a horse, he came through the scrub, he came through the scrub, and there was a young Aboriginal girl, no more than 12 years old, tied to a tree. Now, this is Mary Gilmore hearing this story from her uncle about the whip that he has saved. This young girl is tied to a tree. We're talking about the smell of a deceased body. The child... And I don't know what you were doing at the age of 12, but I know what I was doing. I wasn't playing netball, but I was being very bad and I was having a 12-year-old's life. The child had her arms behind her. They were tied around a tree and she was incapable of moving and she was dead. And she'd been tied there by a particular bloke who everybody knew. And they talked about this story in this short story that she refers to, this reminiscence. They talked about it and in doing so they mentioned the fact that after they talked about taking the whip off the child who was dead, they talked about how you might use a stirrup iron to kill people and how a round one was better than a square one. And then... It finishes, it finishes with this observation that, um, in fact, it was too good a whip to leave. Now, what's interesting about that story, forget for a minute that child tied to that tree. Everybody knew who the bloke was who did it and nobody, nobody put him in. You know, we're lawyers. John Hardy and I and Daniel and nobody put him in. Everybody said, this is what we found. We knew who that bloke was and nobody put him in. That's 1935 referring to an earlier story. And then you come back, right back. Let's go back to the 1840s here in Victoria because this stuff isn't just the Kimberley. It's everywhere. And you go back to the 1840s and you look at something that came through Sievrite's stories mm. about what happened in the western westerns part of the state. And there's a particular story about Sivrite coming across a number of people who were dead. And there were three dead women. And they all had a hole in their chest where they'd been shot. And two of them had broken limbs. And one of them was heavily pregnant and the other one was a dead child. Now, you know, that led to nobody being prosecuted. So I just want to go to the nub of this story, which is this. We will hear people say about what I've written... Well, nobody got charged, you know, blah, blah, blah. No Aboriginal person will be surprised to hear that story because, of course, who would ever expect a white person to go to the gallows for that sort of stuff? Only in Mile Creek. Only ever in Mile Creek, really. Yeah. I just want to say that we've done a bit of an acknowledgement of country as we embarked on this tonight. I cannot... I cannot ever really seriously, really seriously understand how Aboriginal people have been so brave, yeah. so resolute, yeah. 
and so insistent in ways that I don't understand. I mean, I come from a sort of left-wing family background, but the the degree of the degree of resolute commitment that Aboriginal people have shown every day, getting out of bed and going about it, I can't begin to think about how they do that. So let's not let's not, let's not labour that. Let's let's just say. We've got a chance to try and start doing something about what we are in this country. This book's just a beginning. It's ugly. It needed to be written. Somebody else might have written it better than me, but I'm glad it's done. And it's out there. But it's just one of a number of things that we need to know about ourselves, and it is about ourselves. So what I would be saying to you, please, don't leave here feeling full of despair, because Aboriginal people don't. No. They don't. For decades teaching this stuff in a university context, you would always get those students who would be so overwhelmed and they would say things like, I feel so guilty, I feel so powerless, I feel so... It's so tragic. I'm always going to say the same thing. That is the easy way. Yeah. It's easy to feel bad. It's easy to feel guilty. It's easy to recognise it's a tragedy. What's hard is to say, I'm going to move forward and I'm going to bring people with me. And that, for, for our students, that's their families often. Often they have to go home and have really hard conversations with mum and dad, grandpa and grandma. These are the hardest things that we have to talk about. I really don't think feeling mournful and sorrowful, as, as important and all as that is, because it's an acknowledgement of the tragedy that's unfolded, it also can be a very convenient way of preventing you from doing anything about it. Don't let that happen. That's what we're saying. Get out there and change the world. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh... O'Leary of the Underworld is available from all readings stores, as well as our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to all First Nations people. Thank you.